Guys, you know the drill. Grab your Bibles if you got them. Uh, and we're going to turn to Ezra chapter 6. We're going to go through approximately 17 less chapters than we did last week. A little bit shorter, a little more condensed. Ezra chapter 6. If you're on a device, uh, you want to go to the ESV version. Uh, if you want to stay tracking with us. Uh, if not, you can go to any version you want. And we won't know that, but you might not be tracking with us as well. So just throwing that out there. Ezra chapter 6. Well, we, uh, we somewhat foolishly, and you can use those two words to describe a lot of the things uh, that I do when it comes to like home and home repair stuff. But uh, we somewhat foolishly began a bathroom project right after COVID began in 2020 because it seemed like the right time and it seemed like the time that everybody was doing those things. And it seemed like it was working out for everybody who was doing those things, uh, but not quite us. But and after the whole thing was demoed, right, um, which was a word that I learned after somebody came in and tore up the bathroom, um, the bathroom then sat there unfinished for months. And those months felt like years. Um, and I went 12 weeks without taking a shower during that time. I'm kidding. We had, a, we had other bathrooms, thankfully. Um, it wasn't a super happy time. The problem was that it was so hard to find people to do the work for free. You know what I mean? It's that typical problem that we have. So we finally, we, at some point in the middle of the process, we hired some people to come in to paint, but the job they did ended up looking worse than before. Um, so that was an experience. Don't worry, none of those people were in our, our congregation. I mean, they're not in anymore, right, since that time. Um, so the whole thing was a little demoralizing, but it was also not the biggest thing happening in our lives. But then one day, God finally connected us with the right people to come and complete the job and the project, which I think only took like another two weeks, right? Um, but there was a lot of waiting. There was a lot of discouragement. There was some fear that this was going to be our life, for, right? We're going to have to go old school, little house on the prairie. We're going to have to get an outhouse. You know, we're going to have to do this thing. We were resigning ourselves to that. But the Lord finally intervened. The work was completed. Now, this is not the same thing as what we're reading about in Ezra, but it's the best illustration I had to point out that God ordains our delays. Let that sink in for a minute. God ordains. He's over. He's okay with. He allows to happen. That's what we say ordain our delays. The things that we're waiting for that are causing discomfort, that are causing us some measure of fear, that are causing us to second guess a lot of things in our life. God ordains our delays. And in those delays, he does something. He does something to you and through you when he's making you wait, which by the way is all the time practically. And with the exception of what half of you guys are gonna do, which is go through that Taco Bell drive-through after the service today, everything else, he makes you wait. And you know what, if there's like 12 cars in front of you, He's ordaining that delay because you're waiting for that, right? You're waiting for those tacos. He ordains our delays. But in those delays, he does this amazing thing where he creates more depth. He creates more resilience in us. And in those, many times in those times, he's, he's testing us. He's calling us to obedience. And he's preparing our hearts for joy. And that's what we see here as we dive in to this 
point now in the history of the Israelites, as we've been learning, as they've come back to Jerusalem, as they've come back to the land, as they faced opposition, as they faced delays that have been ordained by God, they now come into this place where building is happening in earnest now, the rebuilding process. Man, they are just cranking now with this whole thing. All the bricks are being laid. All the people know exactly what their tasks are. It's all coming together. And this is where we pick up in chapter 6, verse 13. And that's where I'm going to start reading right now. And it says, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Balzani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Remember last week, uh, Darius told the governor, he said, hey, n- n- not only are you going to not stop them from rebuilding, but man, you're going you're to help them. You're going to provide all the snacks they need during the day to keep them strong. You're going to supply all the building materials they need, like anything that's required for them to continue this process. It's all coming down on you. So he did it. Verse 14, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Verse 16, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. Verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, the return exiles kept the Passover for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord for us today. This question we want to answer this morning is how does Israel respond when God fulfills his promises. And what can we as the church learn from this particular response that Israel has here as they finally complete the work of rebuilding the temple? The first thing that we see here is that they didn't just complete the work, but as they completed the work and by completing the work, they themselves were engaging in a work of obedience. It wasn't really just about the temple So God had called them to rebuild the temple because he wanted to bring them back to the land. He wanted to be rejoined with them and renew them, restore them as his people. But it was also not just about the work of hammers and nails, but it was a work of particular obedience that was happening in the hearts of the Israelites, given that the reason why they were sent into captivity and sent into exile in the first place was why? 
because of their disobedience. So a couple of things are happening here. As we picked up in verse 13, the governor, it says, diligently supplied the Israelites with everything they needed during the construction process, which they resumed under the encouragement of two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And then in verse 14, it says they finally complete the temple by the decrees of both God and the kings that they listed, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Now, that's a significant piece that brings us back to chapter 1. Remember where we see the Lord's plan, plans coming to fruition through the unfolding of all kinds of random human elements, right? It's like standing back and the Israelites are looking at all these different things. And it looks at, at all these different moments in their history with this, that how, how can this happen? Do you see the obstacles that we're facing? How can God actually take this piece, this detached piece, this detached piece, and that thing dangling over there and bring this whole thing together so that we can actually do this thing? And what we see is that God is what? He's unconstrained. Like those detached pieces are just detached to us. They just look like a mess to us, but they're not a mess for God. By decree of what does it say? God and the kings. Man, that's hard for us to figure out, right? So somehow God is sovereign. Somehow God is in control of everything. And somehow he also works through the agency of human beings for his will to come to fruition. I don't know how to explain that because I'm not God. But we see that over and over again in Scripture. If you could see all the ingredients spread out when Melissa is cooking, it is mind-numbing, all right? Um, it feels impossible that a simultaneously delicious and good-looking uh, dish is going to come out of all the mayhem on that kitchen counter. I know when I get home, she's gonna be like, there's no mayhem on my kitchen counter, buddy boy. Um, and she's right, it's not mayhem if you're Melissa, because why? Because all of the ingredients are managed and they are measured by her. The Lord was the master builder here. The Lord was the chief architect. And you know what? He's that way in our lives as well. He is the chief architect in your life. He is the master builder in your life. Man, if you're like me, your life just looks like a bunch of two by fours, just perpetual. It's like my bathroom that was demoed. That was a metaphor for my life. I just don't want to say it in the beginning because that was a little much for me, right, to confess to you guys. But that's like a metaphor for many of our lives, right? It's all just laying there. And you just think, how can this come together? I don't know how to make this come together. I don't know how to make sense of all these pieces and God's like standing back going like, I don't know what you're sweating out here because I'm the builder, because I'm the chief architect, because I'm the guy that looks down at a pile of all kinds of stuff in your life and I see that differently because I know the beginning to the end of all of these pieces that just look loose to you because you ain't got even like one whatever of the brain power that I got. I don't know math, Right? The Lord was the master builder. So the Israelites got to work. They finally got to work. Now listen, we're not told what further obstacles that they face. And I'm sure that there were like a few thousand, I mean, just given our bathroom experience, right? There had to have been so many obstacles that they continue to face. But what we see is that they move forward in courage and in what? Obedience. 
They moved forward in obedience. And the house of God was finished almost 20 years after the first decree from Cyrus. And by the way, almost 70 years to the day after the first temple was destroyed. So what we see with the Israelites is despite the obstacles, they obeyed. And you know, it's our obedience. Our obedience is how we respond to hope in God's faithfulness. Let me put it this way. Our obedience is not really about our obedience. Let me say that. Our obedience is not really about our obedience. He, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, 23 says, let us hold fast, the writer tells us, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Do you get what's going on there? Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. Why? Because we never waver? No. It's because he who promised is faithful. Our obedience is how we practically live out the faithfulness and the promises of God. Right? So every time the church steps out in obedience to God in the midst of hardships, downtimes, seasons of opposition, it's casting a spotlight on God who is faithful in keeping his promises. What did we talk about last week though? Well, the timing isn't always like where we like it to be. But in that, God is doing something. In those moments where he is ordaining the delays, he is also ordaining something significant happening in your heart. Eugene Peterson has this great quote. This is what he says. Listen. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. Israelites got to work, right? He says, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It's not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with some bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or a fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Listen to this. He said, it is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. That is not hoping in God, but bullying God. Isn't that a great quote? Man, it tells us something about our relationship to God when he is fulfilling his promises through the outworking of our obedience. It's like a collaborative thing happening. Right? So where does that put us today? If we're thinking about obedience and the way they finish this work through obedience, where does that put us today as Substance Church? Well, it means we move forward. Right? It means we make plans. It means that you and I, we take steps of faith with, with wisdom, with obedience and hope 
while carrying out the mission that Jesus has entrusted us to carry out. That's why I'm so excited right now. As plans are being made for some, some new ministries we have going on in the fall, some building projects beginning this spring that are going to position us to be a greater blessing to the Ashland community and to one another. Are there challenges to all of this? Yes. Uh, money seems to come to mind when I say this, right? But we are trusting the Lord will move through you and in a myriad of other ways that we can't see because nothing is too hard for the Lord. He told the prophet Jeremiah that in the midst of a difficult time, he said, he said, Jeremiah, he said, buddy, I added the buddy, he said, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Do you see how he qualified that? He didn't just say, behold, I am the Lord, the God. He said, behold, I am the Lord, the God of what? All flesh. Because all that fleshly stuff that you guys are all jacked up about and you get all worried about and you get panicked about and you just think, man, I can't see the end of that in my life. He's like, yeah, the thing is, I'm the God of that. I'm the God of all that stuff that creates anxiety in your flesh. It ain't a thing to me, is what he's saying. It just ain't a thing. And if there's anything God doesn't want done because we don't bully him and we don't tell him what he should be doing, he will reveal that to us through wisdom and through prayer and through good counsel. So we don't demand anything from the Lord. We act with diligence and obedience and pray that he blesses the work of our hands because in all reality, we believe it is the work of his hands to the best of our ability. So let me just say this before we move on. Can I ask you to pray about those two things I just mentioned briefly? New ministries, new building projects. We're getting them close to the place where we can announce them to you with some measure of intelligence, okay? But you can pray for the process today. And I'll just tell you, your leaders will be grateful and full of joy for those prayers. And that's what happened next. So not only did they work to complete the project in obedience, but it tells us that they celebrated with joy. They celebrated with joy. There's a collaboration between our obedience and our joy. They just work together somehow. There's just like hand in glove. We don't get the latter, joy, without the former, which is obedience. In verse 16, we read that they dedicate the house of God and they celebrate with joy. And then in verse 18, we read that they, let me pick up in 18 here where it says, they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem. And then this important line at the end here that says, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they were coming back to hitting reset, to refreshing the processes that God had originally gave them when he had established them in the land. You see the sense of renewal and restoration that was unfolding as they were working these things out in obedience. And why these things would have been the occasion to celebrate with joy. And here's what we know about joy. And there's some qualifications I'm going to get to here in a second. But there is not really true joy until we are truly obeying the Lord. And by the way, that obedience is never perfect obedience, by the way. But it is an honest and earnest desire to please the Lord. 
and walk in obedience to his desires. And here's the thing. The Israelites were not just trying to relive the past here or take a trip through memory lane when they returned to the land and rebuilt the temple. This was a return to obedience, which in turn was also a return to joy and celebration. And you know something about joy? Joy runs deep. Joy runs deep. Joy was running deep here with the Israelites. And what joy is, is that it's, it's this peculiar, in some ways, response that happens in the hearts of God's people. It means this. It means that even though we are faced with opposition, even though we are in the midst of impossible situations, even though circumstances look absolutely bleak and unredeemable, we trust that somehow God is good and loving. And we remain obedient to him by offering him praise and thankfulness. Here it is, before and after we see what he accomplishes. And you know what happens? Our faith is strengthened in those moments and we get another bucket load of God's grace showered on our heads and our hearts. I, I was involved in the music industry years ago. I had a friend who was a, a fellow, fellow artist friend of mine that were in a band and they were leaving one of these festivals that we were playing and they got into a massive car accident. They were in a van, they're Tour manager was driving the van. He fell asleep at the wheel. They hit the center meridian, and the van just tumbled and tumbled and tumbled. And two of them were thrown from the van. One of them, the singer, the guy I was closest with, was trapped under the van. The van had fell on him and, and uh, collapsed on him. Almost lost his life. The Lord spared him. But he wrote a song about what was happening in the process of his rehabilitation, which was long, which was long. And he said this, and this is just, a, just a, some of the lyrics from this particular song that he wrote. And he said, No, life is never fair. It owes me nothing. Just when I had it all, I lost everything. And then he writes this. He says, but somehow God is good and God is loving. And just when I lost it all, I gained everything. So this is a brother that if you talk to them, he would say, I would not choose to get in that accident in the van again. But he would tell you that God did something that he doesn't see how else would have happened had he not been through the delay that that put on his life and changed everything that happened from then on and after. He experienced a bucket load of God's grace. His faith was strengthened. And when you talk to him now, he celebrates with joy. It's easy to look at the Israelites and think, of course they celebrated with joy. Everything was finally going their way now. But that's reading this text very narrowly, right? That's not considering how those 70 years in captivity had shaped them. This was a people who were returning to God after a shameful exile due to their disobedience, right? That's why this joy, this celebration of joy, 
This was a heavy joy, a sober joy, which, by the way, is the best kind of joy. Or maybe, maybe it's the actual definition of joy. Maybe it's the only kind of joy God provides because our joy can't be dependent on how great our circumstances are. It needs to be dependent on how great our God is. If I was one of those slick churches, I would have, you know, Scott up here cueing that song right now, but we're not going to do that, right? But what we learn here is that joy is, is heavyweight. It's heavyweight stuff. Happiness matters too. We don't denigrate happiness, but happiness is sort of the lightweight version of that. But both are weights, right? Both are weights. I like a good meal, joy. I like a good dessert, happiness, right? And God supplies us with both through the steps we take of obedience, where we see this interesting collaboration happen. So it says they celebrated the dedication of the temple. And then they reinstated the Passover celebration, which was something that years and years ago God had commanded them to do. If you don't know what the Passover is, it was this moment in the history of the nation of Israel when they were under slavery in the nation of Egypt and God raises up a dude named Moses to deliver them. And the problem was that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, wouldn't let the people go. So God sends all of these plagues through Moses and his brother Aaron to basically show Pharaoh his power and that he was serious about releasing the children of Israel. Well, it gets to the final plague, and it was a serious one, and it was that he was going to take the life of every firstborn in the nation of Egypt. And so what he did was he gave the children of Israel an opportunity to be passed over so that their firstborns would be spared. And they were to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on their doorposts. A lot of allusions here to what we're talking about with Christ, obviously. And so when the angel came over and took the lives of all the firstborns of those Egyptians, a horrific thing. Everybody who had blood on their doorposts, the angel passed over. And God told them they were to celebrate this year after year. They were to celebrate it as a way of remembering their deliverance, of remembering who God was and what he had done. So they got back to it. They slaughtered the lamb and all the exiles and all the people who had separated themselves from the unclean practices and the unclean people who were influencing them. They all ate together. And it was part of this feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast. And it says they celebrated with joy because fellowship with God had been restored. It wasn't the temple in and of itself that brought the joy. Remember that. It, it was the joy that God was once again dwelling in the temple with his people. And here's one final thing that we learn about their joy in verse 22. It said, for the Lord had made them joyful. For the Lord had made them joyful. You know what I love about verses like that? Is that anytime we think that we, you know, that, that we sort of can muster up some things in our own. I did a pretty good job there. I showed a lot of strength there. Man, my faith was off the charts. Love how I obeyed. Scripture just reminds us over and over again, that's cute. But the problem is, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. 
in the words of Jesus. Even the faith we have is given to us by God. Even the joy that we have in praising God is given to us by God. That's who we are. That's how weak and fragile we are. That's how little we have to offer. Unless it's given to us by God himself. It was the Lord that was responsible for their joy. Isn't that sweet? Does it take some measure of burden from you? It wasn't something they manufactured. He supplied it. And here's what he also did. He also turned the heart of King Darius at the very end there. In verse 22 it said, which reminds us that God is responsible for everything. Man, I love that. I love that. I want you to drink that in this morning. God is responsible for everything in your life. He is the one who empowers us to obey. He is the one who gives us hearts to thank him. He is the one who gives us lips to praise him. He is the one who makes us joyful. It's not a joyful thing if we have to search for it or manufacture it somewhere inside of us by the power of our own strength, which, by the way, ebbs and flows based on a thousand different variables. It is the Lord, the embodiment of joy, that makes us joyful and that empowers us to embody that joy by demonstrating it through our celebration of it. Now listen to this, all right? If you are not experiencing joy, if that is something that has been a struggle for you and you stand back and you go, man, this joy thing, I almost feel like this is like a weight because I'm not experiencing joy and I feel like, man, I, I really got to look closely at my life and maybe I'm living in disobedience. That could be true. But if you are not experiencing joy, it does not necessarily mean you are walking in disobedience. It might mean that you may be having a hard time precisely because you are trying to live in obedience. And we have an enemy out there that would like to stop us from living in obedience. So again, part of our joy is not because our circumstances are making life so difficult for us because we actually are stepping out in obedience and now we're hitting all these roadblocks, right? Part of our joy is taking comfort in the fact that God sees that. God notices you. God sees you. And some of us feel like, man, I, I just, I, I don't, I feel like I operate in life as somebody who, who's not noticed or somebody who's always kind of behind everything that's going on. Or, or, or I'm, I've, you know, I've, I've done some things, I've lived out some things in my life, and I feel like I, 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 don't, I don't receive appreciation for it, I don't receive thanks for it, um, and I'm not asking for that, but sometimes I wonder. And yet we see in Scripture, we see that God sees, that God saw the obedience of the Israelites, and he made them joyful. So let me end like this and say that we don't need to rebuild a temple for God to dwell in. That's not the situation we're in today. God sent Jesus to be the temple who dwelled with us. And then he redeemed our hearts to be the temple where his spirit dwells in us. That's the reality of the life we live as the church now. It was for joy that Jesus endured the cross Obedience is a serious thing to God, but so is joy. So is joy. 
It is for freedom and joy that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now we can look at the Israelites and we can see just this long story of their exile. We see the agony of their waiting. We see the obstacles they faced. We see this timidity that overcame them. We see a faith that was often more weak than strong. We see the fear that overwhelmed their very existence. And we can see how God lovingly and patiently and relentlessly intervened. How God sent them encouragement to continue on and obey and wait for the joy that would be theirs. Obedience is a serious thing to God, but so is joy. And this is so much like our story, like your story, like my story, as we struggle to obey, slogging through times of sickness, especially in the past six months, relationship breakdowns, jobs that feel like prison sentences. What do we do with that? We remember Christ who for the sake of joy endured so that we might have salvation. Jesus is why joy, your joy and my joy is not merely aspirational. Jesus is why hope isn't just some inspirational slogan that we just toss around that doesn't have its root in anything. Jesus is why we can make plans and we can move forward in obedience, but with joy. Let this encourage and strengthen you today because many of you are facing joyless circumstances in your life. This helps us remember something about the call from God to look very closely at our lives and to see and to examine Man, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's some hidden sin that I don't want to deal with, some subtle sin. There's something there that I need to come clean before the Lord in. Because, man, it's driving a wrench between me and my joy. Look at that closely as we consider how serious God is about our obedience, but also about our joy and how he wants to bring us to a place where we do celebrate with a sober and a heavy joy. I'm going to turn to Colossians while you bow your heads, and I'm going to pray through a prayer that Paul prayed for the church. Because this speaks to everything that we just learned today in Ezra. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to read this and then pray for us. Paul writes, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might 
for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you root out anything in our lives that would be a pattern or an act of disobedience against you? Because we don't want to live that way. We want to come before you in repentance because when we do, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and bring us into a new place with joy and thanksgiving. And we have that thanksgiving because you have qualified us through Christ to share in the, this inheritance. Thank you, Jesus, for delivering us from darkness, transferring us to your kingdom. It is in you that we have been redeemed and have forgiveness. So Lord, for those of us who need for the first time to come before you and receive this forgiveness so that we do have this inheritance with Christ, Lord, would you speak to those sitting there now that are tired and exhausted as they contemplate those things in their lives that have been undealt with, those sins that have continued to bear down on them. Lord, for us that are in your kingdom, that have received this redemption, Lord, I pray that you would surface those sins that keep us in a place of distance from you. Lord, would you humble us today? Would you return us to joy as we take a step of obedience in praying, Lord, that you would wash us clean. Lord, would you do this work in us and fill us with your joy, the joy of Christ this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.